Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books Network Podcast. My name is Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, and I am your host for the channels in language and media and communications, respectively. I am trying something new uh, today on the episode. I have invited Rachel Hall, who is the author of Heirlooms Stories from BKMK Press of the University of Missouri, Kansas City from 2016. And it's unusual because even though this is a book that is kind of about language, it's um, actually fiction. So it is a collection of stories that are about words, they're about language, they're about identity um, being displaced, you know, good for the current times, I think, in terms of resonance. And but they are not it's not a nonfiction academic book, which is typically um, my wheelhouse. So I'm excited to try something new today. For a little context, Heirlooms begins in the French seaside city of Saint-Malo in 1939. So it's, a, it's, a, it's written to begin in the wartime and ends in the American Midwest in 1989. And in each of the linked stories along the way, the war reverberates through four generations of a Jewish family, um, and it is inspired by the author's family stories as well as extensive research. Heirlooms explores assumptions about love, duty, memory, and truth, and um, just is a really powerful and beautiful piece of writing that I'm excited to share with everyone. Now, the author informed me that it's customary in the literary world, which is not a world I'm usually in, that you read excerpts of the author's work to kind of whet the appetite. And so I'm going to read you a few that I have picked out because they have resonance with the channel and language, and then I'll bring the author on to talk about the book Heirlooms. All right. First passage. Words, all words, seem suspect, not something one can trust. Shh, she says. What does she believe in, this man, this moment? He isn't much taller than her, and so their bodies fit together easily, and she has that feeling one has after searching for a puzzle piece and then finding it. The certainty of the fit. Yes, this is the one. She believes in this. Next, they left words, phrases, a sureness with language, their mother tongue. They left their names because they proved difficult for Americans, Eugenie, A name like a brook flowing became Jenny. Lisa became Liz. Jean became John. For a surname, they took the child's name, Latour. So they appear as one, a family. And the final quote, Sometimes, Lisa says, I find myself wondering where something is, an owl brooch set with turquoise eyes from my sister, or a particular square platter. And then I know it is gone. She shakes her head, laughs at her forgetfulness. It turns out there are things that cannot be left. The very nature of secrets, for instance, insists that they be kept. The child savors hers like a smooth candy in her mouth. She believes her father is alive somewhere, hiding still. Perhaps no one has told him the war is over. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another interview for the New Books Network. 
My name is Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns, and I am a host for the channel in language. But today I'm excited to actually be hosting a book on fiction. So you also may be listening to this on the channel in fiction. And that book is entitled Heirlooms. One word, no subtitle, very, very brash. And it is by Rachel Hall. It won the G.S. Sharat Chandra Prize for Short Fiction, selected by Merge Piercy, and it is published by BKMK Press in 2016. This is the first time I've done an interview on a fiction book, so please bear with me, uh, author and listeners. But I was excited to do the book. I came across it. It's from 2017, so it's relatively recent. But I came across it because the author, Rachel, and I actually worked together at the State University of New York at Geneseo, and I had been wanting to maybe try my hand at a fiction interview. And this was right up my alley because it does a couple of things that I really like, that fic, sort of uh, strategies that fiction uses. Number one, it is a historical fiction that also works kind of into intergenerational ideas. So instead of just being set in one specific time period, in this case, um, right toward the end of World War II and the very, very late 30s, but it actually transcends sort of like the reverberations of those experiences into later generations. So that was number one. Two, it uses multiple vignettes from different characters who are all experiencing this this event, this historical event from different perspectives. But it doesn't do it in a way where I, I have to wait till the end for all seven of their stories to suddenly connect or whatever. But in fact, you, you see similar characters repeated over the course of the chapters so that they're crisscrossing in their lives. And it makes, I think, it makes switching from character to character not only easier, but also a lot more fluid in a way that, that allows me to connect and engage in the characters as I'm reading. And then, of course, finally, there's a really interesting thing that Hall does with language in this book that is unique in the sense that she is traversing several geographic spaces. So she's looking at America. She's looking at uh, occupied France, Israel, Ger you know, uh, pieces of Germany. And so she occasionally will drop the French or she will uh, comment on what it's like for the the, those who left Europe to come into America and learn some of this American vernacular. In fact, there's a whole chapter in which um, these recently immigrated American um, French citizens, I think they're French, have now have to learn the idioms of English. And so in addition to getting at some of the things we would expect from wartime experience, as well as um, the fact that this is rooted in actually some of Hall's own family stories, there's also this cool language component, which makes it a particularly good fit for people interested in new books and language. So with that, it was a fabulous read. I'm not, I will say I'm not normally a modern fiction person, but I can't recommend the book highly enough. And I'm excited to chat about it with the author, Rachel Hall. And Rachel, are you here? I am. Wonderful. All right. Well, if you go ahead and just, you know, take it away, introduce yourself, talk about background of the book, maybe an overview of the, of the plot, anything I haven't already touched on, just because most of our listeners will obviously not have read the book yet. And then we can get into some of the specific parts as you like. Okay, great, great. And thanks so much for, um, for doing this, Lee. This is really fun. Um, so um, Heirlooms um, started, I guess, um, well, people ask me, you know, what, how long did it take you to write this book? And I often say, well, after hemming and hawing for a little bit, I say, oh, my whole life. It took me my whole life. And uh, I, I guess I say that in part because I grew up hearing some of these stories from my mother and my grandparents, and I sort of ingested them early on, and they kind of became my own stories. So in a way, I, I grew up hearing these stories, and um, it, it just seemed uh, inevitable that I would come to write them at some point. So um, I wrote the, the first story in the book, um, and it was published in, in 2001. Um, and I thought that I was done with that material, basically. 
Um, and I was working on something else at the time. Um, and then suddenly uh, the last story in the book came to me. And um, I took some time off from what I was writing and and wrote that story. And I um, and then I realized I had bookends, that I had the first and the last story in a collection, a linked collection, um, and that I then needed to fill out the middle. Um, so that's how I, I worked. Um, first story, last story. And then actually I did write that sort of middle story, which is the title story, Heirlooms. Um, yeah, so, so that's the process, I guess. Um, the, the book starts in, um, in 1940, um, just as uh, Germany is um, occupying, t- taking over France, occupying France, and ends in like the 80, late 80s or 90s. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the chronology of the book. Um, and it follows a family, in particular, it follows a family, the Lutour family, um, uh, you know, it, who, we begin with them in France and then you follow them through the war and um, afterwards to, they come to the States and um, settle in California in the Bay Area. And then eventually we follow them to the Midwest. Um, and it's, it's really about, um, in my mind, it's really about um, that history, but also sort of the lingering effects of that history on the family and how it continues to play out for them. Well, and, and it's, so it's written in 2017 about, a, you know, a large swath of history, but it has like, like continued relevance even just three years later with the way that we're starting to talk about like intergenerational trauma again. So I find this really interesting because historically intergenerational trauma or really any kind of intergenerational effects where sort of historical oppression or any kind of, you know, very like upsetting national event is, is passed down through minoritized persons, right? So in this case, like occupied citizens or, or Jewish folks, right? It's not mm-hmm. like a dominant experience. We don't talk about intergenerational for, for the average cis, white, American, whatever. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing people starting to talk about it again because of COVID and how there's going to be this kind of like generational reverberations. And I, I think in some ways that's obviously very sad because you don't you don't ever want a tragedy to create a change and shift. But also it's I think it's beneficial in some ways because now instead of only certain people experiencing the kind of generational effects that this book delves into, it starts to become something that is is something all of us experience when tragedy strikes. And so I liked the book because these people felt less foreign to me now than I wonder if they may have in 2017. Mm, interesting. That that makes me think of the the depression in this country, right? Like the way the Great Depression, the way you know people who lived through that tended to be much more thrifty, and um, you know, you, you just hear stories about babies like sleeping in chest right. and that sort of thing, saving tea bags. Um, so yeah, yeah, COVID's probably going to have that kind of um, epigenetic. Uh, it, I mean, if in fact it is epigenetic, right, uh, right, right. Yeah. Whatever, whatever that is. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't really know about that, about epigenetics. I didn't know, you know, that term when I was writing the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only later that I started to learn about that. And it, so that was really interesting to me too, to think about the ways that these stories that I'd grown up hearing 
um, had affected me in, in ways, you know, that I didn't even know or understand. Do you want to explain epigenetics for the people listening? I'm not just, I'm never, I'm never sure how much familiarity there is with terminology. So I err on the side of define everything. Yeah, sure. Um, and I, I don't, I probably can't do a super great job, but just this idea. That, that's perfect because the people listening, you know, we're all in here for general knowledge purposes. So a general definition is totally fine. Okay. Um, so, you know, basically the idea that you inherit, um, the experiences um, that your ancestors lived through, the stressful ones. Um, so, for instance, people whose parents lived through the Holocaust, you know, in the camps, carry in their genetic makeup some of the, you know, their, their genetics were changed by, um, by that experience, and then that gets passed on. Um, the trauma gets passed on. And so anxiety is one of the things that you see in children of the Holocaust, um, sort of a striving um, and anxiety and that sort of thing that, that has gotten passed on from, an, from because of an experience they did not actually live through. They still, um, you know, it's as if they did. Yeah. And, and I think what's also really interesting about this book and, and I'm a, and I'm a trauma scholar in the sense that I'm often critical of the way that tra- in fact even now as I see sort of like grief becoming a dominant framework for thinking about what's happening with the pandemic mm-hmm. it's not always grief so I, I like the book because there is there is the sense of the kinds of you know pain and loss in fact you know the whole concept of heirlooms is this idea that not only does do objects get passed on and experiences and stories get passed on, but absences get passed on, right? Loss gets passed on. And so there's so many ways in which heirlooms show up in the book, which, which makes the title, I think, really cool. But sometimes there isn't, right? There's not the same sense of grief or trauma. In fact, there's a character in the book who, um, Brigitte, who is a very minor character, but she, she winds up being the person that everyone suspects betrays the family and friends to the Germans and then winds up getting like their loved ones killed. And she, she comes across as this very flippant, just like desperate sort of boy, crazy, uh, immature. So she is enmeshed in the, in the trauma, just like everyone else is, but the way that she deals with it doesn't look emotionally the way that you'd expect. And so it's cool because she's not the only character, but there are several characters who, who show us that the way that these epigenetics happen is not predetermined. So the fact that you live through what we would call a trauma does not mean that it shows up in your behavior or the way you interact with others or your social group the same way as it might for someone else who lived through the same factual trauma, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I like the variety of experiences that the book gives birth to because you know I've read other books that have similar kinds of storylines and everyone starts to feel like the same character after a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's true of like um, really any intergenerational, even if you think of like Legends of the Fall with Brad Pitt and Anthony Quinn, and that tells the story of all the brothers. And the, so it's sort of similar in the sense it's intergenerational, deals with wartime trauma. But after a while, all of the characters start to just be the same set of like dysfunctional, traumatized people. And it, it really, I think, undermines the way that humans just have such a wide range in which they can experience what happens in all of these like awful historical circumstances. But the book really does justice to that. Great. So I don't know if you want to comment on that, but um, and if you don't, because it was just sort of more something I'm throwing out there. I'd love to hear about your favorite character in the book and more about their story, whether they're 
not only their biography in terms of whether they're like part of your past, but also just like, how did they develop and how do you know them and what's their story in the book? And what do you, what do you think they have to teach us? Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the things that was um, really fun about writing the book in this way, you know, with sort of separate stories for, you know, that, that were narrated by different characters is that um, it allowed me to get at a bunch of different perspectives about sort of, um, you know, the similar, or, or just, you know, a bunch of different perspectives, I guess. Um, and so if I got tired of one character, um, I was able to sort of leap into another character's perspective and, and, and tell the story from, from their point of view. And that, that's, um, I guess one of the things I'm interested in is the way that different characters respond to the times, um, to what's happening around them. Um, so Brigitte, for for instance, is is an opportunist, right? Like she um, she's hungry and she's also boy crazy, and so she's happy to you know help out you know a handsome Nazi soldier if it means um, you know something good for her. So she she's um, her, I guess her trauma comes later, you know, after she's been arrested and 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 um, you know. Um, for, for betraying the French. Um, so yeah, but, um, but she's not my favorite character, Brigitte. Um, I guess my favorite character, well, it depends. Well, yeah. And when I, and when I say favorite, I just, um, mm-hmm. I don't mean like she's like the best character. She's obviously not the best character in the book. No, I just, yeah. I liked, I liked that she was different and that I always like when you throw in kind of a wild card character, I think mm-hmm. it makes books more feel more real, I guess is more what I meant. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So another character that's, that's kind of like that maybe, and again, not one of my favorites, but I did really, uh, feel important that, that, that this story was important is, um, is, um, uh, the character, um, in, uh, in, um, La Poussette. Um, so Sylvie, the character of Sylvie, mm-hmm. who's a, a French farm woman uh who you know um is unwilling to help uh the neighbors who are who are the are you know the main characters in the book um and so I was really interested in right when I was writing about her in thinking about um you know the 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 ways that sort of normal people um fail uh to do the right thing right um, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so, so she ends up on the wrong side of history here um, for, for very personal reasons, really. Um, so I, I was interested in trying to understand why somebody would do the wrong thing. Um, and and I, I've heard from readers that the story sometimes surprises them because they feel sort of sympathetically towards her in the beginning. And um, and then it turns out she does this sort of horrible thing. Um, but, but I think that's really common, (laughs) you know, that was sort of what I was going for that, like, you know, just normal people behave badly all the time in real life. And during a war that's has more tragic ends. Yeah. I really like, um, I, this, whenever we have to share, like, uh, whenever I teach public speaking and I teach the difference between a fact and the meaning of the fact. Mm-hmm. I always use this example that after the Allied forces freed the last of the 
prisoners of uh, of the camps mm-hmm. after World War II. So this is going to be like 1940, real early 40s, right? And they're and who they're freeing at this point are like Roma gypsies um, and just the last of the people to be rounded up. Because you know, with schizophrenics. I mean, by that time they'd started to not to round up all kinds of people that they that the Nazis felt were like a threat to the to the future of the Aryan race. And so you get this this conglomerate of people, and of course they're all emaciated. And the first thing that the soldiers do is feed them. Mm-hmm. And then most of them die. Yeah. Right. Be- and it's such a good, and, and that's not even like a malicious thing. It's just, right. I mean, there, and it's not even like a road to hell is paved with good intentions or whatever. It's just that, the, you know, the in- intentions don't, ne- don't have, often don't have anything to do with the effects. And that's kind of what's cool is that sometimes bad things happen in this book because good people do bad things. And sometimes bad people do bad things. And sometimes good people do like benign, innocuous things. And I, there's this whole thing with this, um, trading the baby carriage that seems to have this very, and you say, and I read in your, in your other interviews that this baby carriage story is, um, is based like somewhat on a, on a story that you've heard passing through. And it seems like it's just the trading of this baby carriage, but with it comes all of this kind of loss and sadness, even though it was really just this, this bartering transaction. And I just think the book is really cool in the way it looks at all the complexities for why people do things often with no motive at all, sometimes just partial information or, and imagined, you know, they, they think one thing is true, but another thing is true. And it really just looks exactly how I think human behavior works. And that's hard for a book to do. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I like that. I like that. Yeah. So the, the stroller, um, the baby carriage stroller story is um, actually true. It was, um, my, uh, it was a, it was my mother's baby carriage. And um, they were, they were trying to farm in the, in the, <laughs> the French countryside and they were, you know, they were a chemist and a law student artist and they didn't know the first thing about farming. And um, they found out when they got there that if you were a farmer, you didn't get rations. So they were really hungry. So they tried to, they tried to, um, to buy some food from the neighbors and the neighbors were um, not welcoming um, and in fact, you know, sent them away until they saw the baby, the baby stroller, which was, you know, the sort of city, city thing that they'd brought with them that kind of gave them away as city people. Um, and then, and then the, a trade was made. Uh, and my, so my grandmother used to tell that story all the time. And, and the, the detail that I remember her saying um, was about the potatoes boiling over and the woman wouldn't even give the potatoes um, to my mother when she was an infant. <laughs> and right, that, I know, yeah. yeah. And that was sort of that was sort of like the, the thing my grandmother just couldn't believe, that those were going for the pigs instead of uh, the child. So, Yeah, well, I had to reread that part because I thought pigs was a metaphor. And then I realized, oh, no, they're actually going to give these potatoes to pigs. Yeah. So do you actually want to, so I think we might be presuming a little bit too much of the reader at this point. Do you actually just want to tell the story? Uh, Cause they haven't read the book. So I've had the privilege right. of reading this whole chapter, but maybe you could just tell it or do you want me to find it and read it or what would make you more comfortable here? Uh, do you, I'm not sure what, how to, how to tell the story except for that. I guess I can just sort of tell the anecdote that. Yeah. Tell the anecdote that works. Um, so um, and I guess I should say, too, um, when I talk about the characters, I say they're my grandparents. They were really my mother's adoptive parents. Um, so that's that's sort of important in the book, but maybe not so much important for just this 
conversation. But um, yeah, unfor- unfortunately, these interviews are very iceberg. About, like they're very like tip of the iceberg for these books. So, but that's good because if people want to know more and read the full, because the obviously we can never do justice, especially the writing is just beautiful. So we can't do justice to that kind of depth in the interview. But we can whet the appetite with anecdotes. I think that that's fair. Okay, great, great. So um, they, my uh, mother and her adoptive parents were living um, in France and trying uh, to farm and they, they did not know how. And so they went next door, you know, to the farmhouse next door and asked, you know, if they could barter something or if they actually, they wanted to just buy um, some, some probably flour because they didn't have anything even for bread or um, and the neighbors uh, refused them, and um, and you know we were about to send them home when they noticed that um, they had brought my mother as an infant in her in her stroller. So um, they said, "Wait a minute, we'll uh, we'll give you we'll give you some barley for that stroller." And so my mother was plunked out of her stroller, and they had to carry her back to the farmhouse. But they did have they did get barley from that. And they, they did eat barley the whole time they were there. And my, my grandmother, and this is true too. My grandmother, um, never ate barley again. In fact, I just tried barley like last winter. I, I grew up never eating it. Um, it was like, you know, forbidden practically in my family. Yeah. We, we have a similar thing with, um, uh, I think it's turnips in our family. Yeah, I can never remember if it's turnips or parsnips because this hasn't been true for years. But growing up as a little kid, like you could not bring a turnip anywhere near my grandparents; they just would not have it. It's all they ate for years. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting how food carries uh, associations with it like that. Yeah. Well, it's funny too because, like, as I'm a kid, I knew this turnip thing and I understood it was kind of like a, a carryover from my great from from my grandfather having grown up on a turnip farm and just after the depression, turnips being the only thing that they could eat. Oh, and yeah. then I'm watching this show called Family Matters, which was really popular in the '90s. It had Steve Urkel on it. Do you, mm-hmm. I, I think most people like vaguely remember this show. Well, there's a scene where the grandma Estelle, who still lives in the house and was about my grandparents' age, um, maybe a little older, she they run out of money because somebody loses their job. So she goes into depression mode and it's supposed to be funny, but it's also, I think what, what happens. I mean, we've all seen this happen at, with people who, who grew up in the depression. They kind of kick back into that yeah. mode if they, if they ever leave it in the first place. Right. Yeah. And, um, and she says, okay, she says, okay, we're going to eat turnips. <sighs> and I thought it was so funny because it was like, it's like a cultural consciousness about this turnip thing. Yeah. So it was so strange to see this TV show reflect back something that I thought was very unique. So it is unique. It's also collective. And I think you touch on that. I think you touch on that doubledness very well in the book because these experiences very much belong to like, I've obviously never like experienced the story of being taken out of my carriage to trade it so we could eat. But there were aspects of of many of the stories that I thought really got at something more universal about loss and sacrifice, even though they're very particularized in this particular context. Mm, great. Thank you. That's good to hear. Do you want to move on to another character or another anecdote maybe from the book that you really like? Um, let's see. Oh, I guess, I guess the character, a, a character that I do really like, um, um, although I think he's a complicated guy, is um, the character of Jean. Jean. Yeah, yeah sure. Yes. Let's talk about Jean. So Jean was based on my mother's um, adoptive father, who I grew up calling my grandfather. And um, he was, he really sort of 
in real life relished, uh, you know, being the Frenchman and he never lost his accent and he was very handsome. And, um, so he would go, go places and, um, and charm everybody with his accent. And, uh, and so I tried to, in the book to, to, um, to capture that aspect of him. And I think, I hope that he, uh, um, offers some humor in, in what is, I think, you know, um, a, a kind of a sad story, um, which, you know, because of the, the, the time period that it's looking at, I mean, they, they survive and, and it's hopeful in that way, but there's a lot of loss along the way. But I, but I hope that Jean offers, um, you know, offers some humor in his, in his comments and in his observations. Um, so, so that was, he was a character that I, that I enjoyed writing. And, um, in the, in the book, he um, becomes a successful shampoo manufacturer. And um, in real life, um, my grandfather did try to make shampoo and he did manufacture it in their basement. Um, but it did not take off. Um, they, they, at one point, they, they even built a factory. Um, and then the person who was backing him sort of pulled out. And so that that was the end of that. Um, but but for the purposes of the book, I thought, gosh, you know, they, there's so much loss and sadness here. I'm going to give them this. I'm going to let them yeah, get rid. That's, that, it was interesting, too, because reading this, that was one of those moments where I thought, oh, what luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that always makes you wonder, like, oh, no, did they really actually not succeed? And now I know. And now I'm so sad. So thank you for that, because yeah. I, I I think you time that well. There's, um, I'm definitely suspicious of compassion overload. Uh, uh, what do they call it? Um, oh, emotion fatigue in books. It's one of the reasons I don't often read like these kinds of stories is because the, 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 the fatigue of just being so sad all the time. I just, it doesn't create a very, uh, I just don't like it as a reading experience, mm-hmm. but you, you have a great balance here. So like I said, it just feels very human and all of the capacity and nothing the joy seems to balance out the sadness and the loss seems to balance out the gains. And there isn't, not that it's ever equal, but there, mm-hmm. it's a very robust reading experience that I don't feel is emotionally manipulative. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's good. I'm glad. I mean, I do think, you know, language too is one way of sort of uh, uh, mitigating that, right? Like beautiful language and um, yes. attention to detail, that sort of thing. I hope also, um, you know, works against, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make people just sad, sad, sad. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, and it shuts down, it shuts down, right. I, I find that if you make, if you try to make people too sad, they will shut down all of the, so there's a, there's a, there's a, a diminishing returns on investment. So you, I think you stay right in the zone where I want to keep reading, but you're also being fair to the fact that this shit is sad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like there's no, like, right. You're not going to put rose colored glasses on about this. I mean, it was post-World war. People are acting terribly. There's famine and grief and um, loss just everywhere, but it doesn't, it's not all that there, it doesn't, it doesn't overwhelm the field of vision, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. That's good. I just, I, um, I just taught um, Tim O'Brien's um, "The Things They Carried" in my yes, yep, in my class this semester, and he has this great line about you know if you read a war story and it's it's uplifting, you you know realize that you've just you know um, 
you've just ingested a, a you know a pile of shit basically because um, you know no no war story is going to be uplifting or happy you know so um, so I, I I do I'm glad that you say that it's true to that um, and 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 to be fair to that quote too I move beyond the war so yeah and um, and Jean is a great character because. I always tell people sort of like we get, I I think often, especially when we're talking about tragedy, we get stuck in this binary, exactly what you said of like sad and happy, right? Mm -hmm. That that, you got to be sad, you got to be happy, got to be sad. But there's, I think there are other affects that are available to thinking about those experiences. And one of them is purpose. Mm -hmm. And purpose is not happy or sadness. It's sort of a a third thing that, that can abide both happiness and sadness. And Jean is a man of purpose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so he provides another affective economy for understanding this set of experiences that isn't kind of one of those like commonly available. And so that's why he sort of feels almost alien in this book. I mean, to, to, to I think to, to me as like a modern person, mm-hmm. his, his a fortitude of character feels like something that could only happen in fiction. But I know firsthand that that is, that is actually like was a very, like that's a way that a lot of people dealt with the aftermath of the war is they just got busy. Right, right. Right, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually too, the way you said that, you know, person of purpose made me think about Lise in the story La Poussette because Yeah, she, Lise is great. We should probably yeah, we should I was hoping we'd get to Lise pretty soon because yeah. she's obviously like the big thread. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, she she talks about like how you can know and not know things at the same time and she gets busy cleaning out like the chicken coop and the the house and so forth. And actually, I, I didn't think about this before, but since you brought up, you know, um, the pandemic and how we're all inside, I think that's, I think a lot of us are thinking in those terms now, right? Like, you know, and you don't know, right? And you just right. have to know about your day with all this, you know, anxiety and concern about what's next, fear, all of those things. So, um, but, but that's cause you made me think about those things. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, w- well, and, and, you know, and purpose is an interesting one because so both of us are, f- are faculty members. We both have gone online to teach and I'm sure you've also noticed that there is almost this, this double bind where on the one hand it's, it's, everyone is complaining about it and thinks that it's ridiculous. And why would we force faculty and students to, to go to, t- to try to also like learn, at a moment of such terrible trauma. And then there's people who want everything to be okay. And they're like, no, it's fine. And I'm just going to give everybody whatever they want. And we're just going to, I'm just going to be as flexible and open-minded as possible. And then, then there is this third factor, which is like purpose. I mean, I don't like, what if we find purpose in the moment? And what if we, what if we keep learning, but maybe learning just doesn't look the same way. And there's almost no room, I think in some ways for that conversation, because everyone is so seeped into the, everything is terrible. Everything's going to be fine binary. And I, it's hard for people to admit of the complexity of alternate perspectives where happy and sad aren't the only choices you have for explaining what's happening. And the book really gets at that in a totally different context, but in ways that I appreciated because you got to think about it, right? Books are what's keeping me company right now. I mean, they're my friends, like more than they ever, more than they ever have been for readers. And this book was a great friend to have in this moment, as opposed to, you know, like you said, something that's just overwhelmingly terrible and sad or something that tries to, you know, put sunshine where there are clouds kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, what you say about, you know, the happy, sad binary. I think um, sometimes when I'm teaching fiction writing, students uh, 
write themselves into these corners, right? Where like the character is either yes, you know, mm-hmm. going to have an abortion or not have an abortion, right? And it's like, uh, you know, I mean, that's a that's a tricky one. <laughs> but, you know, like they're going to leave the, the husband or they're not going to. And there's like I say, there's always a third. You know, if you're stuck that way, there's always a third option. Yeah, similar. My, my students are writing screenplays right now, and a bunch of them want to tell these resilient uh, domestic, like, I left my abusive partner narratives. Oh, yeah. But they're not allowed to just tell a story of a woman who just figures it out and leaves. Mm-hmm. And they're not allowed to tell a story of a woman who just can't get out. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you, you can't have those two stories. Find me a third story. And they they are really struggling. But um, it, that's the work, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, that's, and that's what happens in life more often than not. Right. Is we find that sort of middle ground um, to to solve our to, to to deal with whatever is happening. It seems well, well. Also, and I think what's really interesting about this book, and I think this is true of all all great writing, is that the choices are always so small. Mm. We we think in history of like these grand choices, right? They're very right. We're either gonna we're either gonna make the big leave or we're gonna stay in the right. They're these huge high consequence choices, but. These characters, like the baby carriage, for example, it's a small choice, right? It's a series of little tiny choices. Even Brigitte betraying them to the Germans um, is presented as almost kind of like a byproduct of her just wanting to have a man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not presented as some kind of grandiose strategy. And I think that that's, that's one of the reasons I really love literature as opposed to other forms of media, because other forms of media really thrive on the big. And literature really, I think, does a wonderful job with the small. And that's that's more where most of us how we make decisions. We make decisions on tiny scales that add up over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if that gets you back to Lee's, but I don't want to, I don't want to take us off track from talking more about her. If you have more to say. Um, gosh. So Lee's is, is, um, based on my, um, my grandmother who lived to be 103. Um, and she was a painter and I think that's what kept her going. She painted until she was a hundred. Actually, she used to say, it was all good until she was 100. And then after that, it was downhill. <laughs> so, um, but the character Lee's, um, the character, um, you know, saves, saves the baby, you know, um, but also really wants the baby, I guess this kind of goes back to, um, you know, the small choices and um, that, that people make. And I think, um I mean, although it's a big choice to, to, to raise the child, I think she um, feels guilt the whole time that, that she had wanted her so much. Um, and, and that, you know, by, by losing her brother and sister-in-law, she ends up with this child. So um, I was interested in exploring that over time, you know, the, 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 the love and, um, you know, that she steps in and does this thing, but also that the child um, gives her something that she, she can't have otherwise. Um, so, so that was important to me to, to sort of explore um, the complexity of that relationship. I mean, I think all mother-daughter relationships are pretty complicated, but this one seemed especially so to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the, and what's interesting is you call a lot of the mothers in this book, mother, Mm. you'll say things like mother was in the kitchen. And, and, and sometimes that's cool because it almost makes me wonder if this mother is someone else's daughter in another chapter. And that's why you're sort of not naming her Mm. or if this is a term of endearment, but 
mother had an interesting in the way you didn't do with like father, for example. Yeah. Or sister or whatever. Do you, is there a reason behind that? Gosh, I don't think so, except for to maybe sound like, um, you know, a little more like the French or something. Well, that's kind of what I was wondering if that was part of it or, um, and sometimes you use the French, which I believe is maman. Is that the French? Yeah. Mama. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And sometimes that, that you use that. Do you speak, do you speak French or are these just snippets that you inherited for the book? Um, I, I studied in France for a year and I, I, f- I figured that because of, yeah, this, the, there's no way you could have made up the descriptions of the scenes that had to be firsthand. So I, had, yeah. I figured you must've done something there. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I was fluent at, at one point, but I, I've really lost a lot of it, which is um, horrible to admit. It's true. <laughs> if you don't, you know, although we could, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but we could definitely get together a French speaking and reading group because I read and translate it because I read so much French post-structural theory. Oh. Cannot speak a lick of it. Ah. Yeah. So, so, um, all right. Well, and we're, we're coming up sort of like around the half, halfway mark for the, or the, the 30 minute mark for the interview. So what other characters do you want to talk about or anecdotes or motivations for the book? Because again, I want, I want people listening to be able to walk away, um, getting some of the value of the book without actually reading it, but also sort of show them what the book could offer if they decided they wanted to pick it up and enjoy it. Okay. Um, gosh, let's see. Well, um, ah, I don't know. Um, do you, well, we haven't talked much about the, the, the later generations. So how, how the, how we talked about Lee's and we haven't talked about Alain and his, his loss. Oh, so either okay. of those I think might be good touchstones. Okay. Okay. So, um, Alain is, um, in the, is a character who's in the French resistance. Um, and is killed um, very near the, or actually at, at like three days from D-Day. So very near the end of the war, almost, almost survives. And then uh, is betrayed by Brigitte, who we've talked about a little bit. And um, I, uh, I, I really struggled with how to write his character. So while he is in some ways kind of, an, a, a hero of this story. He's also really absent from the story, uh, which he was also, I think, in, in, you know, during the time that my, you know, that this really happened. I mean, he was away from the family. He was, you know, off doing work um, in the, in, with the French resistance. So um, he, he appears in a couple of stories, but they're not told from his perspective ever. Um he appears in um, uh, the war ends many times, and he. I I loved that line. Um, it, that's and that's for everyone. The war ends many times, but you're specifically talking, if I'm not mistaken, about Simone. And so Simone is Elaine's I don't, girlfriend. I mean, you make a whole joke about how they don't like that word, but and and what's cool is we get to know I think Elaine mostly through Alain. Is, is it the on sound? Say that again for me. Yeah, Alain. Okay. Alain? Okay. Mm-hmm. We get we get to know Alain because Simone describes him, but she describes him as absent. Mm-hmm. So right, so so that was very cool. And it's a way to get to know the character without making him present since his absence is so important because he's is Lise's brother, correct? Right. 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 Yeah. And and you want to feel his loss for Lise as well as Simone, as well as the whole family, because then of course it has all these other impacts that he's not around. Yeah. Uh, so that was beautiful. And then you make this comment after after Simone learns that Elan has 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 been you know executed by the Germans. You say that the the war ends many times for Simone, but it ends the first time, et cetera. And 
Yeah. It was great. I mean, the writing on this part, Rachel, really stellar. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, that, 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 I, that was a story that I didn't know how to title for a really long time. Um, and then sort of stumbled upon that, like, you know, plucked it from the text and, and, and hoped it worked. <laughs> so, well, but I think it gets back to that conversation we were having earlier about these watershed moments aren't, don't, aren't necessarily how things happen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? The war does end many times and also doesn't end for some people and also never need for other people was never even a factor. I mean, I, you know, and, and I think it's going to be true. That's true of the great, I mean, it's true of all historical atrocities. I mean, think, think of how many, think of how many people who were like in the, in the Holocaust for whom the Holocaust quote ended in 1943 or whatever, obviously not. Right. Yeah. So um, I think I just thought you did a great job. And yeah, the title couldn't be more perfect. Mm, thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah. So so Alain sort of uh, his his absence is the is the important thing here, really. Um, so, yeah, that's that's good that that you you got that there, too. Um, but I forget now what your question was. Oh, well, no, no. I just want to talk about Alain because we hadn't talked about him. And then maybe do you want to talk a little bit about some of the later characters? Because right, right now, all the characters we've discussed were sort of in the first, like they were they were crucial to the first part. But in terms of the Second Testament or whatever, you want, the New Testament of the book right. or whatever you want to call the the post like 1960s generations, do you maybe want to touch on a vignette or two there about about how those heirlooms sort of show up later after these other characters are, you know, sort of kind of out of the dominant narrative. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I was really interested in um, thinking about the after of the war, you know, not just the war, but, but after the war and how, how those things linger. Right. Um, and how in the absence of actual things, you know, like China and silver and, you know, traditional heirlooms, um, you know, the family, uh, you know, how do they, how do they pass on, what do they pass on, essentially? Um, and it seems to me that it, that it was stories. And so one, um, the, the short story, Block Party, actually looks at a, another, another family's response um, to the Holocaust in which th- that family essentially hides the, the past, you know, and just tucks it away and, and pretends it never happened. So I wanted to, you know, show some kind of contrast there. <laughs> Um, so that's the story. Which which I will add was another brilliant choice, again, because there's so many ways people deal with tragedy. And one of them we haven't talked about yet is just straight disavowal. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Just, yeah, it didn't happen. It's not me. Um, and, and I think that I, I think that was not uncommon. Um, and I think it was done, you know, with, again, like this going back to motives and not always um, those motives, not always. Uh, being thought through or, or having the intended effect, but I think it was meant to, you know, to save the next generation from, you know, this, the, the, the trauma and the, yeah. Mm -hmm. But of course, which which is an interesting twist on epigenetics. So it's sort of like, does it exist if nobody told you that it happened kind of thing? Well, yes and no. So, I mean, like I said, the book is just too cool in terms of how it deals with some of these psychological and what I would call rhetorical problems, but I guess you'd call them, um, Literary problems? I'm not sure. I don't know. Emotional, psychological, um... and that, and then problems of language, right? That how language transmits and also does not transmit experience, kind of thing. Right, right, right. Yeah. 
Um, so, so Block Party is a story that's set um, in the Midwest in Missouri, um, and that's where the, the the family ends up after some time in the in the Bay Area. Um, and gosh, so then the 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 the, the child um, Eugenie has changed her name, coming over, and decides to be Jenny. Jenny has a daughter. Uh, marries and has a daughter named Sophie. And so the, the later stories um, are, a, a number of them are from Sophie's perspective about um, sort of making sense of her mother and grandmother's stories or grandparents' stories um, and, and growing up in the Midwest. And how, how would you say Jenny makes sense of them? Like, what would you say... Is Jenny's reaction or compensation, or how does her character development as a result of having these stories circulating around? And so now at this point, would Jenny be sort of like a little bit older than you in terms of age group? So uh, Jenny is Eugenie, right? So that's right the infant in France. So, so, and so she's fifty. She's fifty eight at the end of the book, which is okay. So she would be like one generation above you if we were to think of you as like a character in the story. Right. Right. Okay. So, all right. Sophie Just trying to. Is- yeah, Sophie is sort of my generation. Sophie's you. Okay, right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and so how would you say that Jenny, yeah, what, what's what's Jenny's deal in terms of how she shows up after this long period of time? Wait, Jenny or Sophie? Oh, Jenny, sorry. I'm mostly interested in Jenny. So We could talk about Sophie too, though, if you want. Okay, okay. Je- so Jenny, who was a baby at the beginning, is now a 60-year-old woman by the end of the book. Yeah. And then, and then yeah. how has she developed in comparison or contrast to the other women from the first part of the book? yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, she's, she's, um, she's, you know, been sort of, you know, like the immigrant experience, right? Like you, you're just looking forward, you're, you've got to move on, um, you've got to learn a new language. And I think mm-hmm. so her, her grief kind of gets um, muffled a little bit by, yeah. by all the things she has to do, but, it, but I don't think it goes away. Um, and so I, I guess maybe it, it sort of, um, I don't know, the word I just thought of was curdles. It kind of curdles and, and comes yeah, out in other ways. Yeah. And she, um, I don't know what the word is, but she strikes me as a touch more petty than some of the other characters hmm. in that, I think, and I think that's kind of like that, that, that first generation child privilege, which is you get to be petty about things that you're that your earlier generations couldn't be petty about because you don't have to worry the same way they had to worry. But also it's a defense mechanism for kind of not quite belonging, even though she's, she's ostensibly quote, not in the war. She doesn't get to entirely be just like free of the war. Yeah. But there's that thing where she does, like you open a chapter, uh, one of the last chapters where she's talking about traffic and she's sort of like very like cranky about the traffic, like she'll deal with it. And I just thought that was a hilarious problem because that's such a problem that nobody in, in the middle of a war zone, it's going to care about. Mm-hmm. And then also she doesn't understand, or she, not understand, but she has habits of language and habits of thought that she's not, she doesn't quite know where they came from. She just knows that she has them now. And yeah. that kind of makes sense to me. You know, I'm not, I am, I am long since the children of immigrants, but when I think about, you know, my, especially our students who have the, I mean, it resonates with how they talk to me about their thoughts about what their parents and grandparents have gone through. So I thought you did a great job with her. I, I guess I, um, Maybe you did it by accident, but I, I, it resonated very well, I thought. Yeah. Well, one of the things I wanted, I was thinking about with Jenny is that, you know, as a child during that time, she had 
she had to behave, right? Like she, you know, right. Mm -hmm. Yep. She couldn't complain about this or that. She just had to do it. And, um, you know, you sort of wonder like, does that become a lifelong habit or do you, you know, rebel in some way at a certain point from being so agreeable and, and suddenly everything is, 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 is not right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And she, she also seems to have this, like, I wouldn't call it an obsession, but there's definitely this theme of her talking about rules. Mm, okay. Right. When she's, when I think at some point she's conversing with like a, like a waiter or something and she's talking about like, well, we have rules about this. And I noticed that a couple of times and that, and that resonates with how you would think of a child in her position, which is like being very obsessed with behaving and following rules because that's how you create order. Yeah. And yeah. also how you don't stand out, right? Like, so you don't, right. you, don't, right. mm-hmm. you don't let people know that right. you're not Protestant. <laughs> right. As opposed to say joining the French resistance, which gets you killed kind of thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, again, I mean, I, I think, I think, I think Ginny really returns a lot of the themes in a very nuanced and unique way. So it made the ending of the book feel very climactic as opposed to anticlimactic, which was something I was worried about with the book. I was like, oh man, how is, how is this next generation going to show up to keep the momentum going? But I thought Jenny did a great job with that. And we could talk briefly about Sophie if you wanted, um, but we are coming up on 50 minutes and normally this is about the time I wrap. So it's entirely Mm -hmm. up to you or if there's another highlight of the book or something you want to share for the audience in terms of what you think they would find most most interesting or most engaging about the book? Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, um, I don't, I I don't, I don't know. I'll let you wrap it up. Okay. All right. That sounds good. All right. So I will just wrap up by saying that it is very, it, it is hard enough to give due diligence to an excellent nonfiction book by an hour long voice interview. It is doubly hard to do so for an, for a fiction book. And I cannot recommend this book enough, especially at the current moment where all of us who are, who are avid readers are looking for great books to invest in that um, keep us company. I think this is, I could not recommend this more. Again, it is called Heirlooms with an H, H-E-I-R-L-O-O-M-S, Heirlooms by Rachel Hall. You can learn more about Rachel at rachelhall.org, just Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, Hall, H-A-L-L.org. And the book, um, 2017 by BKMK Press. And although I'm sure a, a quick Google will find it on Amazon. And with that said, uh, Rachel, this has been a lovely conversation. Um, thank you so much for being my first guinea pig for a fiction interview. I hope I did okay. You did great. Thank you. And do you have a book you'd like to recommend for the New Books Network or even um, just a great fiction read that you think people at home might enjoy? Oh, gosh. Might enjoy well, picking up? Yeah. I'm First of all, for fiction, I'm a huge uh, Alice Monroe fan. And anything, any collection of short stories by Alice Monroe, it's not new, but it's a classic. So uh, I recommend that. But I have a friend uh, who has a book coming out um, in June, and it's called This is One Way to Dance. And her name is Sajel Shaw, and it's coming up from University of Georgia Press. So I recommend that. It's Perfect. I, yeah. I love Alice Monroe. Yeah, she's Canadian. I know. Yeah, and um, and I am a University of Georgia alumni, so this will work great. I have I have two 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 connections to your recommendation, so I approve. Oh, great, good, good. Yeah, and um, all right. Well, I guess with that, we'll wrap up. Uh, so, readers, again, cannot recommend the book enough. And if you are so, um, if you are interested in the book, but maybe you don't want to read it for yourself, one thing that I always think is a really cool thing to do is either request that your university or a public library purchase the book. Even better buy a copy of the book, ideally hardcover, and donate it as a gift because 
then other people can enjoy the work and you can take it out anytime you like. And sometimes for me, getting a copy for public circulation is even more valuable than owning one in private. And it certainly speaks to the value of heirlooms as sort of a collective memory piece. So that's something you can do if you don't necessarily want to like dig into the book yourself, but want to put forth this valuable work for other people to read. And of course, be sure the interview, share it, tell people about it, post it on social media. Um, let us know what you thought of the interview. You can contact Rachel through the website or um, as always, you can contact me by email and I will send messages to Rachel. So thank you, Rachel, so much for joining us. This was awesome. Yeah. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your stay at home order. Hopefully I will see you in person sometime yeah. soon. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take All good right. care. Okay. Bye-bye.